Our prayer, our desire is that God would do the very thing that was just on uh, that screen, that God would speak uh, to his people, and God will speak to his people uh, through his word. It's why we hold uh, so highly the truth of God's word around here, because we recognize, we recognize that it's God himself speaking into the hearts and minds of his people. I'll tell you, I got nothing. Me personally, I have nothing for you today. But I think God has some things that he wants to say. And so that's why we're going to open his word and we're going to let uh, his truth uh, speak into us. In fact, I think fitting, let's just do this. Let's go right to the text, 2 Timothy 2. 2 Timothy 2. And uh, we're going to be uh, reading chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. And I would encourage you to read along with me. Here's just briefly the context around uh, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy is the last letter written by Paul. His death is imminent. He writes to Timothy, kind of his final words, parting words to him. And in chapter 1, he's exhorting Timothy to, to guard the gospel, to remember the gospel, to not lose sight and hope of the gospel. It's quite possible that Timothy, having some crisis of faith, or struggling through something, and Paul is exhorting him in this. And then in the latter part of the uh, chapter 1, there's these couple of examples that we get where uh, uh, a negative example and then a positive example of those who have guarded the gospel that was entrusted to them and it went well for them and those that did not and it went poorly for them. Uh, but here's what God's word uh, says. Second to the, to, sorry, Second Timothy 2, uh, verse 1 and following says this, you then, my child, and now he's going to press in specifically to Timothy. Hey, you, you want to know what, what it is for you to follow me? You, you want to know what it is for those around you to follow me? Here it is. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, is preached in my gospel, for which I am now suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. Love this next line. But the word of God is not bound. Timothy is saying, I might be imprisoned, I might be in chains. God's word, not so much. The word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Would you join me as we get before the throne of grace and ask God to open our hearts and minds to understand what it is that he has for us here this morning. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, as we come before you this morning, we thank you. God, we thank you that your word is true. We thank you that your word uh, can be trusted and uh, depended upon. And and God, we thank you that uh, we can have great confidence in your word because we can have great confidence in you. And so God, we pray that as we open your word that that what would pour forth is, is just that. It's your word, God, that we would respond to it uh, accordingly, that the Spirit would have the freedom to do whatever in us needs to be done. 
And so God, we entrust ourselves. We entrust ourselves to you now. But God, not only for us, I pray for Pastor Josh Swanson and for Hope Church. God, I thank you for my brother Josh. I thank you for his faithful ministry and his, the proclamation of the word. And God, I pray for them. I pray that as Josh preaches this morning that you would speak through him and that the people of hope would be strengthened and encouraged by your truths. And God, we pray that you would do that very same thing for us, that we would be strengthened and encouraged by your truths. Lord Jesus, would you do that now for your name's sake? I pray this all in your name, Lord. Amen. In these last few weeks, we've been moving through this sermon series, Church on a Mission. We'll wrap up the series uh, this morning. Uh, And just by way of uh, both introduction and review, a few weeks ago we looked at gospel urgency, right? That the gospel is the motivation. It's it's what gives us the urgency uh, to go forward. Last week we talked about ministry necessity, that God God wires us in a particular way. He he puts giftedness into each and every one of us and he expects us uh, to utilize that. And it comes to uh, what we have here this morning. The title of the message is Discipleship Clarity. A discipleship clarity, really, if we were to say it in a sentence, it would sound something like this, that God's mission, the, the urgency of the gospel, the necessity of our ministry, all those things that we've been looking at here this last month, that God's mission prompts us to grow and serve as disciples. God's mission for you and I prompts us to grow and serve as disciples. And of course, when we use the word disciple, we mean in the purest sense, a follower. And specifically here, we're talking about following Jesus Discipleship clarity, uh, how Paul in his letter to Timothy, he's going to define both how and why we grow and serve as disciples and certainly in light of our discipleship kickoff, uh, right, just would continue to implore you uh, to allow God's word to um, maybe challenge you, maybe convict you, maybe move you in a particular manner with respect to discipleship and all of our needs uh, to engage that in a variety of different ways um, and, and in the various ways that we need one another. So discipleship clarity, three things, three things I want to point out here from the text this morning. And uh, I framed all of them as imperatives, I think partly just to strengthen the uh, urgency around some of these things and also to help us understand how we uh, begin to apply and, and, and put into practice God's word and what God has for us here this morning. But here's the first, uh, first thing we see, look at verses one through two. Uh, we see this with respect to discipleship clarity that we uh, submit to the discipleship process that we submit to the discipleship process, that God has a process by which uh, he moves us through in respect to discipleship and that we come under that. That we say, okay, God, I'll do what you're telling me to do. In fact, two things specifically that we see here, right? The whole first chapter around the gospel and God's entrustment of that to Timothy on a broader sense and now beginning to press in on him specifically, you then, my child, He's speaking to Timothy. God, uh, by application, is speaking to each and every one of us here this morning. You then, my child, right? you then, Kathy, you then, Dwayne, you then, John, right? God's speaking to each and every one of us. You put your name in there. Then he says this, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. See, part of coming under Um, The discipleship process that God has given to us is that strength comes through grace, that we recognize and realize that that that's where God starts. And before he ever gets to the work, before he ever gets to us going out and doing things, much like we saw last week, he starts with our heart and our mind and making sure that that is right. 
Now, so interesting, this word strengthened, this is a passive verb. That means that you and I don't go out and try to strengthen ourselves. It's not something that we do, but it's passive in the sense that the strength comes from something outside of us. And so it's not that we go out and try to do something, it's that we allow God to do something to us, that, that we're, we're passive in saying, okay, God, I will surrender myself, I will submit myself and allow you to strengthen me. Which, by the way, that's gonna work a whole lot better than you trying to strengthen yourself in grace. You can't do that. Okay, you can't give something you don't have. You and I don't have grace from God to give. God gives that, okay? And so to be strengthened in that, to suggest that you and I could do that, well, that's just a bad idea. Because you can't give something you don't have. Okay, it comes from God. And so we're strengthened by grace. As you think about this, are you trying to do it on your own? I mean, do you, do you hear this? And you're like, okay, I'm going to try harder. I'm, I'm going to strengthen myself. I'm going to strengthen my resolve. As I was studying this week, I just kept, as I kept reading verse one, I kept thinking about Joshua. Remember Joshua, beginning of the book of Joshua, Joshua one, Moses has just died. They're about to go into the promised land. And God says, be strong and courageous. But what's interesting, if you read the first eight or nine verses, God is very clear. He's, he's not telling Joshua to be strong and courageous in himself. He's telling Joshua, be strong and courageous in me. I have given you, he says repeatedly, I have given you, I have given you, I have given you. I'm with you, I'm going before you, I'm doing this, I won't leave you. So when he gets to the point where he's saying, be strong and courageous, he's not, he's not saying, hey, well up inside of you some kind of strength or courage. He's saying, no, I've done this. Would you simply embrace what I am doing in you and quit fighting it? And yet for how many of us do we want to go out and try to work or earn or achieve grace in and of ourselves? Before we go anywhere, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And will we allow him to do that? Secondly, look at verse 2. Uh, if verse two is not underlined in your Bible, you should probably fix that like right now. And if you don't have a pen, just grab it from the person next to you when they're done underlining it in their Bible. All right, because you, you're gonna want to make sure that this stands out to you. Look at what Paul says. He says, and what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who'll be able to teach others also. I just wrote this down, that we would embrace the process that we would simply embrace the process that God has for us. Three words, three words that I want to point out to us here in the text and really allow them to speak into us. And both, both as we look at these, these various items, that they're informative to us in terms of helping us to know how it is that we disciple one another. But I think there's also a sense in which we have to hear these things and we have to ask ourselves questions with respect to application in our lives and saying, is this true of me? Would this be reflective of my life? Would this be congruent with, with who I am? And so here's the first. Look at what he says. And what you have heard from me, the word here, and specifically what Timothy heard, it was in the presence of many witnesses. It was um, in the most um, specific sense, purest sense, it was the gospel. But you can, you can almost hear Paul saying, hey, remember when I spoke about this? Remember when I was teaching these guys about the truth of Jesus? Remember when I was reminding them of, of his sacrifice in our place? What you heard from me, what you heard from me, now in the broader sense, <clears throat> and we think about this uh, applicationally, we have to understand that part of what Paul's getting at here in the text is he's getting at the reality that each and every one of us, listen very carefully when I hear this, 
that each and every one of us need people speaking God's truth into our lives. No one, no one, no one is immune to that, above that, beyond that, or have arrived at some place where they no longer need that. There is no such thing, there is no such thing as a great disciple who does not continue to hear and listen first. See, the, the truth is, now some, of you, some of you might think that you can grow out of this. Some of you might think that you've moved beyond this. But until Jesus comes back or until you die, you and I will never come to the place where we don't need people speaking God's truth into our lives. Just, you just never get there. I'm sorry. Like, if, if you thought you arrived there, then you need to go read Philippians 3, okay? Um, so so I'm, I'm looking at, I know most of you fairly well. There's a few of you that I don't really know a whole lot about you, so I'm gonna go ahead and I'm gonna make an assumption that you're like every other human that's ever lived and you've got some issues in your life, okay? So I'm gonna jump out on a limb there, though I think that's a pretty sturdy limb because the scriptures tell us that. And I'm gonna assume that you got some issues in your life. Here's what the apostle Paul said in Philippians 3. He said, not that I have arrived, but I press on towards the goal of the upward call of, Christ, of, of God in Christ Jesus. So here's the deal. I, I, I love you all. Uh, you, you guys are great. There really is a great sense in where God is moving and working in this church. But if the Apostle Paul has not arrived, I'm not going to bet a nickel on the fact that any of you have arrived, okay? None of us have arrived. We're not there yet. And so the reality is that we need people speaking in to our lives. And yet... Yet some of us are like, no, I don't, I don't need that. I'm above that. I'm beyond that. And the suggestion there is exactly what Paul would, would be contradictory. What Paul said in Philippians 3 is that you have it together. Now, if you want to go skate on that thin ice, you're free to do that. I'm not joining you, okay? Because you're going to fall through and, and it's going to go very poorly for you. We need people speaking into our lives. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves this morning is, who is that? Who's speaking truth into your life? Who is it that you can hear the hard word from? Who is it that can come to you and say, I love you, this is suspect. Have you considered this? What do you think this, how do you think this reflects who Jesus is in your life? Do you have people like that in your life? I pray you got people like that in your life. That's, that's what we're after with discipleship is that we surround ourselves with people who are gonna speak the hard word into our life. Not, not when I wanna hear it, not when I'm willing to hear it, but usually when you need the hard word is when you don't wanna hear it. But someone who loves you enough to say, hey, you know what? I love you too much to not tell you this. Are we willing to hear? Are we willing to hear? Now, let me just come at this one other way here because sometimes, sometimes people will go like, well, yeah, I think everyone needs it, but I'm, I'm kind of above that. But I'm willing to lead people Okay, that's, that's, the, that's the, the most dangerous place. I don't need people speaking into my life, but I'm willing to speak into other people's lives. Isn't that the very definition of hypocrisy? Like if, if you came to me and said, hey, Mike, I don't really need people speaking into my life, but I'd love to speak into yours. Stop right there. I'm not interested. Let me tell you why. Because you're not willing to hear anything. You're not willing to hear. It's the height of hypocrisy. And you yourself don't even get in. Right, and so part of, part of submitting to the process, right, we're gonna embrace the process. It starts with us hearing. Am I willing to hear, allow others to speak in uh, to my life? Secondly, uh, Paul tells Timothy this. He says, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust 
Entrust, that word entrust literally means to set before or to deposit into someone. Now he qualifies um, who we entrusted to, right? Faithful men or faithful individuals, faithful people here. Really, what he's telling us, this, this is a stewardship issue. The part of the process of discipleship is a willingness to entrust others with discipleship, with the gospel, with ministry. In the same way that God has done that for you and I, that he's entrusted the gospel to us, that he's given us the opportunity to, to go and to share and to grow where we would do the same. I think one of the greatest joys in ministry is watching people who no longer need you because they can go do it on their own and go feed others. That's fantastic. And yet sometimes we wanna, we, we wanna fill our ego with this idea of people need us. No one needs us. Everyone needs Jesus and him alone. But in the same way that God has entrusted us with the gospel, will we help to train up others? And are we raising up disciples? I think this qualifier here is important, this idea of us being faithful or looking for those who are faithful, right? this issue of discernment that comes into this. But I think that word faithful really points as well at this idea of having to pose that question to ourselves and of myself. Where we say, am I faithful? Would I be one who's worthy of the entrustment of the gospel of Jesus Christ in my life? Have I proven myself to be someone who, who should have that entrusted to them? Much like what we saw last week in Ephesians 4, that we would walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. That is, is who I say I am congruent with how I live my life? Am I a man or a woman of faithfulness? Someone who would be worthy of an entrustment of the gospel. Which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men. And then this final item, who will be able to teach others also. Right again, in the purest sense, he's talking about teaching the gospel. In a broader sense, he's talking about teaching others. We could say a lot about this. I'll just say this, that in my experience, I found that those who teach well are first teachable themselves. People who teach well are first and foremost teachable themselves. And part of that, right, part of that is the reality of they know what it takes to learn. They, talk, they, they know what it is to hear, right? They, they understand, well, I have to listen before I can ever speak. They, they recognize the great responsibility of something being entrusted to them. And so when they teach, it's with that in mind. So I think that's a question that we have to ask ourselves. Am I teachable? Am I someone who's teachable? Can I be corrected? Can I have truth spoken into me? Also, am I willing to invest in teaching? Some of us go, I, I don't want to teach. I, I can't do that. And I'm not saying that, that, that teaching looks a variety of ways. But that's part of discipleship is we want to teach others. We want to train others. We want to help others, whether it be your children or a, a sibling or a coworker or a neighbor, whoever it may be. It's just seeing them raised up. Discipleship clarity. First of all, we have to submit to the discipleship process. We have to work through the process. Right, asking ourselves, are we willing to do the work? And then notice this secondly, <clears throat> like so many places in the scripture, God is just up front with the reality that following him is difficult and costly. And so look at what he says in verse three, right? He, he lays out, hey, here's the process. And then in verses three through seven, he starts to tell us what it's gonna cost. I just wrote this down that we would consider the cost of discipleship. Look at what Paul says. 
He gives us great, right? What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men who'll be able to teach others also. That's great, man. I'm, I'm fired up about it. That's exciting. And then verse three, I'm not quite as excited about verse three. Look at what he says. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. He's like, man, is, does verse two fire you up? That turn your crank? You get excited about that? And Timothy's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, great, come suffer with us. It's not exactly the best way to sell something, is it? Like if you were looking for a car and you went to a dealership and you're like, man, I'm looking for a new car. He's like, I think you would love this one. It's gonna torture you for the next 10 years. Oh, I'll take it, right? I mean, you're, you go to Lowe's and you're, and, and you're like, hey, I'm doing this thing in my kitchen. I need some help. And it's like, oh, this is gonna beat you down every day for the next 20 years. Oh, I, that's fantastic. Thank you. Right? We, we wouldn't do that. We'd race away from that. And yet that's, Paul's saying, share in suffering. Share in suffering. I mean, as followers of Jesus Christ, isn't this so true of us? I mean, so sometimes, sometimes as Christians, can't we be so twisted or at least seem so twisted to outsiders? Kind of fired up about suffering sometimes, almost expected. Like things fall apart and it's like, oh, God is doing something great. We're all excited to die. I mean, can you imagine like on the outside, what does that look like? You're fired up about difficulty and suffering and death is like the best thing you've got coming? What is wrong with you? That's weird. And yet the other side of that is the reality that we understand that, yeah, one, we're excited about eternity. We're fired up about what's to come. But we're also excited about being released from the suffering and the struggle and the toil and the angst and the anguish that surrounds us right now. So yeah, it is a little bit weird, but that's the reality of what Jesus calls us to, that we would consider the cost of discipleship. And so here, right, right Paul's, Paul is telling Timothy, come suffer with me. You want to do this? And of course, Paul knows all too well at this point in his ministry what it is to follow Jesus fully. I mean, his death is imminent when he writes this. Come suffer with me. Now see, the reality, loved ones, is you and I have to understand that we're being called to suffer for a season. As I kept reading verse three this week, the, um, the song, The Wonderful Cross, kept popping into my mind. Specifically the part, The Wonderful Cross, Oh, The Wonderful Cross, bids me come and what? Die. Bids me come and die that I may truly live, right? But, but a call to die, a call to suffer, a call to lay it all down. And then as if that wasn't enough, Paul gives us three illustrations to drive home this truth and to really fill out the aspect of the variety of ways that, he, that he's filling up the cost of what it is to follow Jesus. So just make note of these three items here. The first one is a soldier. Sharon's suffering is a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And he tells us a little more about the soldier here. He says, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. As he's talking about a soldier here, I think really what Paul is driving us to here, part of the cost of discipleship is that there's a single-minded devotion. That there's a laser focus around the person of Jesus and what it is to follow him and what it is that he calls us to and what he has for him. And that our desire, our aim is to please the one who enlisted him here, which is in this scenario, it's God. 
part of the cost, right, part of the cost of following Jesus, that I'm going to be single-minded about this, that this is my primary thought, this is my primary devotion, this is the thing that I'm after, is to please the one who's enlisted me. Of course, part of that then, part of that then becomes that I am willing to remove anything that would hinder, that would undercut, that would divide my loyalties to Jesus and to him alone. And I mean, aren't there, aren't there so many distractions in the world today? There's so many distractions in our lives today. I was, we were praying before the service and I was just thinking to myself, I mean, it's, it's lunacy, it's lunacy that we can be confronted with the glory of God and yet we can chase so many other things. I mean, I think it's really a, a picture of our depravity, honestly. And yet there's so many distractions in our life. And, and many of the distractions that show up in our life, they're not bad things. In fact, a lot of them are good things. I said maybe for you, some of the primary distractions are your career or your family or your marriage or your children. Right? Other things that are morally neutral might be entertainment, hobbies, things of that nature. I'm not saying that we give everything up. But I am saying anything that would undermine or undercut singularity to my devotion to Jesus has to go. Soldier doesn't entangle himself with civilian pursuits. And you know what? This isn't really a part of me being on mission. And in fact, it prevents me from being on mission. You're out. That's a hard thing. It's part of the cost. See, that's what Paul's trying to drive home. It's like, man, if you're going to do this well, if you're going to do it to the end, if you're going to do it with any substance, you've got to understand that you've got to remove the things that are going to undercut our devotion. And part of the cost is a willingness to set aside anyone or anything that would undermine a single-minded devotion. Right? His aim is to please the one who enlisted him. I mean, is this our aim? Is this what we're after? A single-minded devotion. Notice uh, the second example he gives, verse 5. I think we can certainly resonate and understand this one. Uh, An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Okay, let me give you the principle here, and then we'll talk about this whole athletic thing here for a moment, but it's a submission to higher standards. What he's really getting at is there's a submission to higher standards. Now, he talks about an athlete Now, I think it's pretty easy in our sports-saturated society to understand athletics and what Paul is getting at here. In fact, let me illustrate. How many days till the NFL season starts? Someone tell me. Who said it? Someone said it. You're right. Come on, say it loud. 18. Most of of you were like, I don't want to say it so quickly. He's going to make fun of me. No, I knew it was 18 because I'm fired up about that too. I love football. Right? We get that concept and, and, and we understand sports now, sometimes our love of sports goes too far. Right? It takes us into places that are no good. Anyone who cheers for the Cowboys, you've obviously derailed. All right? That's why I'm most excited about football season. We just get to make fun of the Cowboys every week for a few months. See some of those Cowboy fans shooting me some daggers right now. Okay, back to the text here. Here we go. Verse 5, an athlete, listen, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. See, it's a submission to higher standards. Part of the athlete is that single-minded devotion we've already seen, but part of it is that there's a participation or willingness to to, to oblige by the rules. I'm going to participate by the rules. 
And in Paul's day and age, when they had the Olympiad, that there was this specific 10-month regiment that athletes had to go through and they had to swear that they had done it correctly before, that they, could com- before they could compete. And see, they were held to a higher standard. See, as believers, the truth is you and I are held to a higher standard. And honestly, I think we should be. I mean, Jesus did this all the time in the Gospels where he would raise the standard. He wasn't afraid one bit to raise the standard. Now, you might go, wait, 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 wait. Mike, that's not fair. It doesn't matter. The question of whether or not it's fair isn't the right question. The question that you and I have to wrestle with is, am I willing to do it? See, because part of representing Jesus is representing him rightly. And part of being on mission and part of the gospel isn't that I cling to every single right I have, but that I would willingly forsake them if that meant the growth of the gospel and the kingdom of God. Yeah, there's a higher standard. No doubt there's a higher standard. And part of, part of our willingness to understand the cost is tied to the fact, am I willing to submit to that higher standard? Now notice this thirdly, verse six. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Now I'll tell you, I've never met a not hardworking farmer because they usually starve to death, all right? But it's the hardworking farmer, that word hardworking there, uh, is actually a technical term that Paul will employ at different points in the scripture uh, referring to ministry labor. But here's the third thing we see with respect to the cost is there's a willingness to work hard. There's a willingness to work hard. Am I gonna work hard at this? Am I gonna devote myself to this? Am I gonna give myself to this? Or am I on the consumer train? Jesus, give me what I want, when I want, where I want it. And then when it works for me, I'll kick something back your way. You have inverted the gospel, loved one, if that is your mindset. See, the love of Christ should compel us to work hard. My dad and I were talking the other night about just the general decline of American work ethic. Uh, Sometimes I feel like it's almost non-existent nowadays. As followers of Jesus Christ, you should work harder than anyone else. No one in your workplace should be a better worker than you. Now, they, you might have people that are more talented than you. You might have people that are more gifted than you. You might have people that are just flat out better than you. But loved ones, if we're going to represent Jesus, we should work hard. And discipleship is hard work. Am I willing to work hard? Am, am I willing to press myself into this? See, one of the things about a farmer is, is that to farm, it, it's comprehensive in their life. Now, I, I like to garden. I know a number of you like to garden. See, it's a hobby for us. Our livelihood doesn't depend on it, right? You or I get squash bugs, what do we do? We kill them, but then we go to Albertsons or Smith's and pick up some produce, okay? If you're a farmer and you get squash bugs, guess what? You're really hungry, and you hope that enough of the crop makes it. See, because it's comprehensive. I remember my sister went to, um, she went to college in Iowa. And I was in high school at the time and I went out to visit her. And one of the things we did is we had drove over to Chicago to watch a, a Cubs game. 
And uh, on the way back, we were driving. Yeah, you want to talk about futility, the Chicago Cubs. And Cowboy fans, you got it so easy. Okay, you could be a Cubs fan, all right? But we were driving back from uh, a Cubs game, and it was late. It was probably like midnight, one in the morning, as we're driving through western Illinois, as we're driving through the eastern part of Iowa, everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. you got farmers out on their tractors and their plows and things of that nature. I'm like, what is wrong with it? The first couple of guys I saw, I was like, what's his deal? And my sister was like, oh, wait, you'll see, you'll see it the whole time. Just the whole time. See, that's what it is. It's comprehensive. It's not just, well, I'll just do it now or when it works for me. But it consumes us. And are we willing to work hard? Discipleship clarity, we submit to the process, we consider the cost. Here's the final thing is we hold to the promise of the gospel. Really, all of discipleship should push us back to the promise of the gospel and the promise and the person of Jesus. And that's exactly where Paul goes here in this next few verses of the text. Look at what he says in verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ. I mean, those three words, there's, there's so much there in those three words. But remember Jesus. He's pointing us back to Jesus. He's telling us to be reminded of Jesus, to consider who we were before Jesus, to consider who we are today in Jesus. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, is preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. See, Paul understands that even in his prison imprisonment and his impending death, right, he's pointing Timothy and maybe even himself in this moment to remember Jesus. And in the, in the scriptures, to remember is not simply to think back upon or to reflect upon. It's also a call to action. And so part of what Paul is saying is, hey, I want you to remember your former state. I want you to remember what God has done for you. I, I, I want you to remember your current standing. I want you to keep him as your primary devotion. That we would remember him. That the starting point, right, the starting point is always found in Jesus Christ. But then this, look at verse 10, holding verses 8 and 9 in tension with verse 10, Paul says this, therefore, right, because of Jesus, this is really how the gospel works in us when it grabs a hold of us. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. That a great line. I'll endure everything. God, whatever you'll throw at me for the sake of your people, I'll walk through it. That's what he's saying. And he, of course, we know he's, he's proved it in his life. I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Why? So that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. See, he's looking toward salvation. He's looking ahead to salvation. And Paul's willing to endure whatever it is that would bring those that God has entrusted to his care to that particular place where they too would understand the salvation of Jesus Christ. It's a worthy question to ask ourselves. Is that true of me? Am I looking toward salvation? Is that the starting point for me? Am I willing to endure all for the sake of others so that they too may understand and experience it? Or is it, well, I got it. Bummer for you. Hope you figure it out on your own. Right, looking toward salvation. And then these last three verses here, <clears throat> I, really, I really struggled this week with how to rightly capture what's going on here. I just wrote this down. 
Um, part of holding to the promise of the gospel is that we would persevere in faithfulness. That we would persevere in faithfulness. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you, as I've studied this week, this particular passage that, um, that, that, well, I just didn't see it correctly before. How I had always understood this passage, how I had always seen it uh, to be is just not congruent with what we see in the broader context of the letter. I'm guessing you probably have done the same. I've used this verse, I've quoted this verse a number of times, and we, we, especially the second part where it's like, if we deny him, he'll also deny us. If we're faithless, he remains faithful. And we think, see, God's with me no matter what. I gotta tell you, these verses are a harsh, stern, blaring warning to Timothy to not be faithless. To not deny. In fact, let me just begin to walk us through this here for a moment. Uh, the first two lines, if you will, of this statement, if we've died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure with him, we'll also reign with him. He, he, he's talking, Paul is talking about this future event, this future entity, where, where at some point in time, his life or Timothy's life may be taken for the sake of the gospel. Of course, that's certainly on Paul's mind as he writes. But he's telling Timothy, hey, there may come a point in time where you're going to die. Just know this, brother, if you die, that you're going to live with him. But if God doesn't kill you or martyr you, so to speak, that you're going to reign with him. And he's saying, listen, as you look to the future, either way, what you have to know and understand is that Jesus is with you. Whether you're killed or you're called to endure, that he's with you. And then these second two lines. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Now again, that forward-looking aspect is in play here. And what Paul is talking about is an ultimate, final denial of Jesus. That we would come to a place, that we would come to a point where we would be standing there and some event would lead us to the place where we would say, I do not believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord. Okay, if you deny him, what's it say? What's Jesus gonna do? He's going to deny us. Wait, why? Why would he do that? Why? Well, hold on. Here's why. Because in that moment, what has been proven is you never belong to him. Your heart was never his. You, you, you might have done the Hebrew 6 thing where you kind of partook of all the blessings, but you were never fully in. And so that's how you know when you come to that ultimate point, I'm out. Right. It's, see, it's just the manifestation of what's been brewing inside for years or decades. You're never his. If we deny him, he will deny us. And then this next line, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. That word faithless, really interesting word in the Greek. The, the word faith in that part of the word is pisteo. That's, that's the word we see littered throughout the New Testament and it refers to saving faith. The Greek word there is apisteo, without saving faith. See, what he's saying is if we are faithless, if we do not have saving faith, God remains faithful. Okay, how does God remain faithful in that? Well, here's why. He cannot deny himself. See, what Paul is talking about here is that God is faithful to his judgment and engagement of sin. That if we deny him, all right, I will deny you. If we are faithless, 
Well, God won't renege on salvation, but God will also not renege on judgment. Now this, this is so pertinent, so relevant, so pressing in our day because the overwhelming, overarching narrative that is being painted uh, uh, with respect to Jesus Christ in our society is Jesus doesn't judge people. Wrong. Jesus judges every person. And it's only by the blood of Christ, it's only by his substitutionary death in our place that we are freed from the consequence of that judgment. And we, we can do one of two things. We can cater and be like, yeah, you know what, Jesus, we do the like hippie loving thing and he never says the hard word and I'm like, you've never read the gospels. He's constantly dropping hard words on people. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. See, because God is first and foremost about God. God's ultimate objective, hear me when I say this, loved ones, I love you, God loves you, you are not his ultimate objective. You are a means to his ultimate objective. His ultimate objective is the expansion of his glory. That's what he's after. We're gonna talk entirely about that next week. But understand that the whole of your existence, first and foremost, is to manifest and make known the glory of God. Now, God, in, in his infinite goodness, draws us close into relationship, draws us close to him, gives us these incredible blessings. That's the kindness of God. That's the goodness of God. But it is his glory, first and foremost, that he is after. Please don't flatter yourself in thinking that you are the primary affection of God's heart above all other things. It's simply not true. But we arrive at that place, we begin to think that way, when I begin to think that Jesus exists for me, not that I exist for him. We arrive at the place where, where we think that we're the ultimate uh, objective in God's um, plan, that my happiness is paramount when I fail to understand who God is and I fail to understand who I am. Yes, God cares about you. God loves you deeply. That's evidence through the cross. But let us not fool ourselves on these things. Because the warning that, Tim that Timothy is being issued here by Paul is a huge, serious warning. If you deny him, he will deny you. If you're not his, he's not yours. If you are faithless, he won't be faithless to his judgment. He will be faithful to that. Of course, if you're faithful, he too will be faithful. Now, of course, the danger is looking at this and going, well, I, what, what if I stumble? What if I fall? What if I slip up? What if, what if I have like that moment? And I think that's where Peter is so um, freeing for us. See, 2 John 9 tells us everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So we look at that, we look at what Jesus said in Matthew 10, whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who's in heaven. I mean, there it is, like over and over again. So it's like, what do we do with Peter? How do we handle that? Well, the distinction is found in this. A final, unrepentant denial of Jesus 
or an issue of sanctification. Now, if you belong to Jesus, if you are truly his, if you can look to a point in time in your life where you have turned from sin, turned towards Jesus, that I will follow him. Then, loved one, hear me when I say, if, if your moment comes and you have some ISIS moment like so many of our brothers and sisters have had in the last number of months, I believe that Jesus will sustain you. Right, look at Stephen in Acts 7. Look at James in Acts 12. Paul. Right, Peter, the guy that we're talking about who denied, ultimately coming to the place where he said, crucify me upside down. I'm not worthy to die the same way that Jesus died. See, it's this final unrepentant denial versus this momentary failure. Here's really where the issue is fully fleshed out. In one instance, in like Peter, for example, God has their heart and they failed. It's true of all of us. That happens every day. But contrast that with the fact that our heart never belonged to God and it's simply now being manifested. And so when we look at these words, if we deny him, he will also deny us. If we're faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. It's a serious, serious warning. It's part of the reason that we need discipleship. We need to point others and be pointed by others back to the glorious truth of who Jesus is. To be reminded of his greatness, to be reminded of his grace, to be reminded of his forgiveness, and to have that happen over and over and over again. Because you're going to walk out of here today, and check this out, I promise, I promise, I promise, no matter how well-intentioned you are, you're going to walk out of here today, and you're all going to sin, and you're all going to fail. How's that for an encouraging word? Go and be blessed, you're loved, have a great day. (laughs) You're going to fail. It's the truth. See, the, the, the beauty is not that, well, if I fail, then Jesus is out on me. No, the beauty is in that Jesus has conquered sin and death, and if I'm his, then that's what I rest in. But you've got to hear the warning, and where we need each other to point us back to this truth and this reality. See, that's what Paul's doing for Timothy. This is discipleship playing out. He's saying, brother, don't you get it? And he's pointing him back to Jesus. And that's what we've got to be doing for each other where we're walking with each other, we're pushing each other, we're we're pressing each other, where we recognize that the whole of our life is more about our happiness or our fulfillment or our little hobby or our little thing and that we're on mission. God calls us to mission. Here's what I want to do to close. I've got three questions, three questions. Let's go and put them up on the screen here. Uh, Chris, if you don't mind, just let's put all three of them up real quick. Um, Three questions and I'm going to give you a couple of minutes to just kind of sit and ponder on these. Uh, and then we'll pray and close. But here are the three questions I want you to wrestle with with respect to discipleship, with respect to the end of uh, those last few verses we've looked at and those things, and you just, between yourself and the Lord, you just get to press in on these things. Uh, Here they are. God, how have I failed you to live on mission? God, how have I failed to live on mission? God, what is it that you're calling me to and I failed uh, to simply do that or or buy into that or or run with that? Uh, Secondly, is there anything in my life that is preventing me from fully living for you? Are your, are your loyalties divided? Do they need to be reoriented? And then just simply this, God, I'm gonna be surrendered, I'm gonna be submitted to whatever you have for, have for me, so God, what is it that you're calling me to do? God, what is it that you're calling me to do? And so in these next couple moments, just in your heart of hearts, between yourself and the Lord, just begin to press in on these items. I'll close us here in a moment, but let's just take a couple moments, and between ourselves and the Lord, Uh, ponder these things.